I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is John Welshans. The fact of the matter is the experience of bliss is inside us. And so one of the things that I like to share with people is that if we could see that experience as like analogous to the sun, you know, like the sun is always shining at night, it appears to not be shining because the earth has turned away from it, but it's shining and just shining on the other side of the earth. And in the morning, it comes back again. And there are those days in which we are in the middle of a storm and the sky is so dark at noon that it seems like it's midnight just because there are so many thick, dark clouds and stormy, you know, wind and rain and so on. But if we could get in an airplane and rise up above the clouds, there the sun is shining. So I think in the same sense, it's helpful for us to remember that the sun of love is always shining in our hearts and that it's the storms in our minds that get in the way of our ability to feel that. So it's really like learning how to mine for the gold that's inside us. John Welshens is the founder and president of Open Heart Seminars. Over the years, one of the main areas of investigation for John has been the grieving process. Welcome, John. Thank you, Anthony. It's good to be with you. I wanted to talk with you first about your book called Awakening from Grief, Finding the Way Back to Joy. And uh, I understand um, from the book that you you did some work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's true, actually. And, uh, Tell me about the time that you spent with her and why a book about grief? (laughs) Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, Actually, I met Elizabeth back in 1976 in Berkeley. Uh, She was uh, part of a conference that was sponsored by John F. Kennedy University. And um, I had spoken with Ram Dass just prior to that. And that's Richard Alpert. Right, uh-huh. who was a dear friend of mine for many years. And he was saying in those days that he was finding working with people who were terminally ill and people who were grieving to be the highest spiritual path he had ever encountered. And he also was doing some work with Elizabeth. At least they were talking about maybe some things that they could work on together. And he said, why don't you go train with her? So as it turned out, I and uh, Stephen Levine and a fellow named Dale Borglum, who is here in Fairfax, uh, who running something called the Living Dying Project, the three of us all were encouraged by Ramdas to be with uh, Elizabeth. So we all showed up at this conference, which, uh, part of which was held at the uh, Claremont Hotel. And then we moved over later in the week to the uh, Kennedy University campus. But it was one of those experiences where I couldn't imagine, really, how being with people who were dying could possibly be inspiring and uh, something that I really wanted to do. But when I listened to Elizabeth speak... It was one of those experiences of like being with someone who is so luminous, so filled with light, so filled with love and compassion, that I finally got to the point where I thought, well, whatever it is she's doing, I want to do it. And um, so she was doing a training program at Kennedy University the following week, and I signed on for that. And um, 
it was an interesting time. You know, in our culture in those days, no one really had heard the word hospice. There was a project in Berkeley called the Shanti Project, which a fellow named Charlie Garfield had started. And uh, that was really pairing up volunteers who wanted to help individuals and families who were dealing with terminal illness. There was no certification for it. There was no licensing. There was no, you know, certainly no uh, health insurance plans, plans paid for it. So... Um, it was all, and, and the training really was, was on-the-job training. It was really learning by the Braille method, kind of. And uh, it did turn out to be some of the most extraordinary work I've ever done in my life. It still is to this day. Can you talk, uh, can you speak to us about how it is? I mean, I know mm. that death is kind of like uh, the other end of, of uh, birth, right? Right. Right, but but talk to us about how you experience this process as being so amazing. Well, it happens kind of uh, by osmosis in a certain sense. The first example I would give was that at the conference in Berkeley, um, the the participants, and there were I think maybe fifteen hundred people there. Here we were in 1976 talking about the one thing that people in America never talked about. And because we thought if we talked about it, we'd be depressed and it was overwhelming and there was, you know, no way to deal with it. And here we were talking about it and everybody at the conference was happy, (laughs) smiling. And so um, what I started to realize over the years, to sort of make a long story short, is that that what being in the presence of death does is it gets our priorities straight. It gets us attuned to what's really important in life. And if people are willing to deal with it openly and honestly, um, it cuts through all of the BS that is normally infecting our lives in this culture. Uh, You know, in other words, when you're facing your death or the death of someone you love, you're not usually all that concerned about who the next winner of American Idol is going to be. You know, I mean, it's just irrelevant. You know, I watched my father when he was dying. Uh, He was one of the biggest basketball fans I've ever known. He was a fan of the New York Knicks. And in the days before he died, he just didn't care anymore, you know. But there were things he did care about. He cared about our relationship. He cared about what the meaning of his life had been, you know. And so, and I remember this moment I had with him, which was just a few years after I trained with Elizabeth. My dad was dying of throat and lung cancer. And he was a very successful, upwardly mobile businessman. And uh, he was someone who all his life, his, the answer to any problem, was to make more money. And here he found himself in the middle of something he couldn't buy his way out of because even the best doctors that money could buy said the case is really hopeless. And I remember sitting with him when he had that recognition and he was thinking so deeply. I said, what are you thinking about, Dad? He said, I'm thinking how differently I would have lived my life if I had ever realized that this was going to happen to me someday. And boy, that's such a taboo subject to to think about in right. today's culture of uh, consumerism and uh, 
feel better by by going out and buying something or exactly you know yeah so um, you know I started to realize that um, that that kind of awakening it really paved the way for he and I to have conversations that we had never had before and for him to become really deeply reflective in a way that he never had so um, you know, I think that, and I also have looked a lot at cultures who don't have this taboo that we have, who look honestly at our mortality as human beings. And the interest... The indigenous cultures, yeah. primarily? Primarily, and uh, cultures, you know, I mean, in India, where I spent time, and uh, I think a lot of Asian cultures and African cultures and so on, who are more connected to the cycles of nature uh, you know, and I see that people who are in tune with their mortality are not depressed. They're actually seeming to be happier than we are. So uh, it's a very interesting field to look at. You know, if, and I can share it from my own life, from doing this work, that I think the main gift it has given me is that I know because I'm reminded of it constantly that we have no guarantees in this life. I mean, we live as if we think we do. You know, we have an average life expectancy of 77 point something years right now, approaching 78 years. It's an average life expectancy. We live as if it's a guarantee. Like we're supposed to get 78 years in this body, and if we don't, you know, somebody has screwed up. We something. Yeah, you something paid your wrong. taxes and yeah. done your investment in your 401k. and Right. <laughs> And, you know, I know we don't have that guarantee. I know any one of us could die at any moment. And the interesting thing is that rather than depress me, that has actually woken me up. Robert Thurman talks about, uh, there's a, a Buddhist exercise about uh, really attending that you may die in the next moment. And how, how does that then get your priorities straight? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask then about, with these other cultures, and particularly with our own culture, um, uh, we have an area that many people experience, but nobody wants to be very uh, helpful to them, and that's grief about mm -hmm. loss with right. a death right. or with... Um, uh, I was involved with a lady uh, a number of years ago, and she decided to... Uh, cut off a relationship and I went into grief for about sure. five years, sure. four or five years. And sure. it was really interesting to me how, uh, number one, that kind of grief would affect me so deeply, but number two, that it wasn't uh, acknowledged to the depth that the, the death of someone uh, close to you, but it's a similar experience, I think. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing that I learned from the Robert Bly uh, men's conferences was to not try to pinch it off or control mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. The shortest, and I wish I would have known this then, that the shortest way through grief is right straight through the center of it. Yeah. And, yeah. To, and to stay with it until it's processed. Because unless you do that, um, it will hang around and be frozen in a stasis. That's right. That's uh, right. Can you comment on what our experience in this culture is of grief. How do we come to not having people other than Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and yourself to facilitate processing of this? 
And then how do other cultures deal with grief mm -hmm. like this? Well, there's certainly a lot more opportunity for this in our culture now than there was 30 years ago. But it's still something that we don't like to think about. And um, I think that it's just getting people to take more advantage of the resources that are available now. And if they do that, then there'll be more resources. For instance, um, hospices in this country are set up to work with families for six months uh, prior to a death. But their biggest problem is that because of the way the whole medical insurance thing works now, the patient has to be referred to the hospice by the doctor, who usually doesn't want to do it until the last 24 to 48 hours. So um, yeah. it's, you know, we, we've got a better system in place, but we're not using it as well as we could have. And uh, uh, it's really the same problem that Elizabeth was facing when she started doing this work 40 years ago. Uh, we well, still, it was unheard of then. It was unheard of. In fact, it was thought to be uncompassionate to talk openly about dying. In other words, in those days, my mother died in the late 60s, and the general thinking in the culture then was that the most compassionate thing to do for someone who was dying was to pretend it wasn't happening, to lie to them about it. And uh, so Elizabeth said to us, can you imagine going through this incredible transformation, whatever you want to call it, uh, the process of death would have to be the most extraordinary journey that a human being takes. It's the one thing that every human being on earth absolutely has to do, and it's the one thing we never talk about or prepare for. And we're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I am your, your host today on uh, Attunement. And my guest today is John Welshans, and he's written two books, one that's called Awakening from Grief, and the other one is called When Prayers Aren't Answered. And how can people get a hold of you, John? Uh, my website is openheartseminars.com or johnwelshons.com. It's J-O-H-N-W-E-L-S-H-O-N-S.com. And um, they can get all kinds of information through the website and also email me through the website if they like. And my email address is john at openheartseminars.com. Great. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest today is John Welshans, and he has written two books. One of them is called Awakening from Grief, and the other one is called When Prayers Aren't Answered. And before the break, John, we were talking about the taboo in this culture that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, faced 40 years ago, you said, uh, when people... Uh, it was felt that it was not compassionate, you had said, to speak to the dying about their own process. Right. Right. And that it was a, a, a tremendous um, experience that, we're, that people are about to have. So please continue. Well, um, I think that she really, uh, she tried to address it with the medical community uh, and say, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how good we are at the art of healing, there still comes a time in every human being's life when they die. And maybe the more compassionate thing would be to help them do that easily than to pretend it isn't happening and to keep doing whatever we can do to prolong their life unnaturally. So I think that one thing that's happened is we've scaled back in the culture on the amount of that that we do, the, amount, the number of people who are on respirators and 
you know, being fed intravenously and with feeding tubes and so on, beyond the point that there's any hope that, that their body's going to heal. Uh, we do less of that, I think. But I think we still don't really, uh, as a whole, address the issue openly and honestly. And I think that we would be much healthier if we did. You know, it's very interesting. I've looked back, several times people have said to me, when did this trend start in our culture? You know, when was it that we lost our connection with the natural process of dying? The best that I can come up with was right after the Second World War. I think that's when the uh, funeral directing industry really took off. And because we somehow, I think, there was an underlying undercurrent in the culture that said we've had enough death, we've had enough loss, let's just go, go, go. Let's build America and become prosperous and be happy all the time. And we took the process of dealing with death out of the home and, and created a profession to take care of it for us. Because it did used to be in the home. The, the wakes the person, were held in the home, yeah. yeah. And the person would be in the front room and, right. and they would be honored and loved by all the loved ones and there would be a wake and a natural cleansing, mm-hmm. right? Right, and, yeah. and that's actually, that, that is a natural response to grief. Right, exactly. That really, it aids the process that we call grief. It aids, you know, exactly what you were saying going through it rather than trying to skirt around it or push it away. And it also takes away a lot of the frightening quality of death because when it's something really mysterious, you know, what I've realized is... Oh, yeah, if it's unknown, Yeah, it's unknown. And when children bring the subject up and their parents say, well, let's not talk about that, that's depressing... You because know, the parent is uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. So the child gets the message, this is something that's so bad, even the big people can't even talk about it. You know. So, And then they start to have these fears about themselves. Exactly, exactly. Other than seeing uh, Uncle George in the front parlor right. that went on just like uh, Aunt Sally the, several years before. And, yeah. and uh, okay. So they have no context, the children don't. They have no context. It's something that happens, it's a mystery that happens behind closed doors someplace else. And we don't talk about it. And that is a problem. It's a real problem. And I look at our culture and I think, well, now we've had 60 years of not talking openly about death because we thought it would depress us. What's the number one most prescribed drug in America today? Prozac? Prozac. Oh, no. Other (laughs) antidepressants. So there's a tremendous problem with depression in the culture, and we also have a huge problem with drug and alcohol addiction. Because people are not feeling alive or fulfilled, and yeah. they're, very, uh, they're grieving about it. Is yeah, that right? exactly. I mean, we don't know what to do with feelings of loss and sadness and disappointment other than to either get angry and beat somebody up or get drunk and numb ourselves. To project it outward yeah. or... To medicate, you know? yeah, and the if children in the culture are taught that this is part of life and this is workable, you know, when parents say, "How do I protect my child from being terrified about death?" The answer is, you yourself learn how to not be terrified of death because children are like sponges; they yeah. pick up from their parents what's being projected. Well, and this was a community event before the Second World War that, right. you know, you'd go to the neighbor's house and see their Uncle George or Aunt Sally. Right. And, right. and um, but then you watched people 
going into the into the darkness mm -hmm. and then coming back. Right. Now they might be changed, I suppose, because mm -hmm. uh, I know in my own grief process, uh, in losing my father and in losing this this intimate relationship, uh, I've been really transformed by it. Of course. Um, but it's not something that. Uh, I felt much support or wel welcoming about. I, I lost some friends along the way because I wasn't going to uh, attempt to uh, make myself in a, go into a stasis just so they could feel comfortable. Right, right. You know? so, um, it's very difficult when people are grieving in this culture because of exactly that experience that suddenly your friends and very often family members can't deal with what you're going through. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hear it anymore. They either stay away or they say, you know, stop telling me about that. I can't listen to it anymore. Why don't anymore. you just get over it? Get over it and, you know, get on with your life. And that's really because we have not, as a culture, cultivated the ability to deal with our own difficult feelings. So when we're around somebody else who's going through them, it's too much. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? <laughs> Well, I think that we turn and face life and death more honestly and openly. And that will help with the grief. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that if, um, if we look, you know, there's a wonderful old Buddhist story that uh, it's about a um, Buddhist master, and I think it was in one of Jack Kornfield's books, um, a Buddhist master had a beautiful crystal goblet that he liked to drink his water from. And um, when he drank, he seemed to really enjoy it. It was a very expensive glass that someone had given him as a gift. So Jack or somebody else went up to him and at one point said, um, what, you know, how can you, your teaching is about letting go of attachment. And um, how do you enjoy that glass that you seem to like so much if you're not attached to it? And the teacher's answer was, it was very simple. He said, you know, for me, this glass is already broken. And he said, so that when I someday carelessly, I'm not looking and I hit it with my elbow, and knock it off the table and it breaks into a million pieces on the floor, I don't have to weep and wail and say, oh my goodness, you know, how terrible, I've broken my favorite glass, because it's already broken. And you start to look at that and you say, in that sense, everyone that we know and love is destined to die someday, and we don't know what day. So what this work has done for me when I said it wakes me up is that for many years now, every morning when I wake up, I think to myself, as I'm preparing for morning meditation, I say, this could be my last day on earth or the last for someone I love. So how am I going to spend it? What am I going to do? How am I going to treat people? You know, what am I going to, what thoughts am I going to fill my mind with? And it suddenly makes everything different because, you know, it's like Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda in, I think, Journey to Ixtlan. He said, keep your death as your constant companion. Keep it over your left shoulder. And if it ever makes a gesture toward you, you will lose a tremendous amount of pettiness. Oh, yes. Because I have to say, in this vein, that when that relationship that I had had mm -hmm. broke up, 
uh, Anthony died mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in who he thought he was. Mm -hmm. And there is no Anthony now. Mm -hmm. There might be this bag of skin here sitting talking across the table to you uh -huh. and to our listeners, uh, but there really is no Anthony in the way that Anthony thought he was. And from that day, from that time, the process of that, uh, it's been very freeing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. being that there is no Anthony, then there's no investment to be made in an Anthony. Right, right. You know? And nothing to protect. Right. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and yet, you know, there still is emotion that comes through. Sure. But there's no necessarily identification yeah. with that emotion or need to hang on to it. And uh, certainly there are people that I care deeply about, and uh, I'd feel very sad about that. But knowing that, that there is no, that they aren't real as a separated individuality either uh, really shifts things mm -hmm. and makes me approach people with a much greater depth of, of patience and compassion, mm -hmm. you know, so are, are these the things that you're talking about in, in terms of bringing those into our lives Absolutely. To, to work with grief? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Buddha's teaching, uh, when asked what the most important teachings he had to offer were, he offered the Four Noble Truths, the first of which was life involves suffering. And uh, there's no way to escape it. You know, I mean, there's all different paths to try to escape it. I know some extremely wealthy people, most of whom are very unhappy. I know some, uh, some of the most skilled and famous positive thinkers on the planet today. I don't know a single one whose life is completely free from suffering. So, um, you know, I think Buddha's uh, teaching is borne out by experience. And then he said the cause of suffering is desire or cling or attachment. That is that if we didn't desire for things to be different than they are, if we didn't desire to have something that we don't have, if we didn't desire to have things stay the way they are or to change in some way that we want them to, we could be happy right now. What a concept. <laughs> you know, right in this moment, we could be happy if we didn't want things to be different. And this moment... You know, that wonderful book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. The power of now is that it's the only moment we have. Well, and even his precursor, Ram Dass, yeah. you know, be here sure. now. Sure. I mean, that, that, I don't know many people who, uh, of our generation who came of age in the 60s that haven't read that. Right. You know, and, and to some extent internalized that. But, right. but so it is, it is this being in the present moment. Being in the present moment, and then as you were referring to, the letting go of our ego attachments that say that this is who I am, this is what my life is about, and, you know, I've got it all clear. And then someone you love dies or makes a choice to leave a relationship that you're in. Mm -hmm. Or you lose a job that was your identity. You or know? your house your in house. these times these days. Right. Your fortune whatever it is, and you're left face-to-face -face with the Creator or with your higher self because the, the small-s self has faded away. Yeah, Viktor Frankl talked about this in, with some of the concentration camp survivors, that right. they were just left with nothing, but they had an incredible resilience of spirit. Isn't it amazing? 
And that's really, you know, the, the most interesting thing about the work that I've done over the last 35 years is seeing that quality in human beings. Seeing that, I mean, it's really come to the point that I feel there is no loss, there is no disappointment, there is no grief, there is no illness or injury that in and of itself can rob us of our inherent ability to be happy to have joyful lives, to have loving lives. Oh, goodness, but it doesn't seem like that when you're down in the middle of it. It doesn't seem like it when you're in the middle of it. So what do we do when we're in the middle of it? Well, in the middle of it, if you know, it's interesting, something Stephen Levine used to point out, if you were becoming, uh, wanting to become an Olympic weightlifter, you would start out by lifting two-pound weights and then work up to five-pound weights and then 10-pound weights. You don't start out with a 300-pound weight. So most of us, our problem in this culture is because we don't talk about these things, we don't prepare, we often wind up with a 300-pound weight on our chest that we can't budge. It's crushing us. And the loss of a loved one, the loss of a romantic relationship, whatever, those losses we've just talked about, they can be like 300-pound weights. So we start out with the little ones, you know, by attuning ourselves to the fact that everything in this world of form is destined to change, you know, and sometimes we're not going to like the changes, and sometimes they're going to come suddenly. And to get accustomed to that, even by going to visit people in hospice or... Absolutely, sure, you know, meditating on cemeteries, uh, you know, taking a moment every time you pass a funeral home, instead of getting the willies, just stop and say you know, well, I'm going to wind up in a place like that one of these days. So how do I love. And how do I choose to interface with that in this moment? Right. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, we've got to take another break. Okay. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, John Welshans, who has written two books. One of them is called Awakening from Grief, and the next one is called When Prayers Aren't Answered. And we're going to talk about uh, when prayers aren't answered after our break. So how can people get a hold of you, John? Uh, the website is openheartseminars.com, and uh, my email address is john at openheartseminars.com, and I'll be happy to, to respond to anybody who writes. And uh, the website has a lot of information about my workshops and books and tapes and so on. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, John Welshans. And John has written two books, one that we've just been talking about called Awakening from Grief, and now the one that I'd like to talk with you about, John, that we have awakened from our grief, or at least have (laughs) a little bit more skill in not having to uh, feel the 300-pound weight. Uh, You've written a book called When Prayers Aren't Answered. Mm -hmm. And how did you come to write this book? Well, it, um, I had some ideas about how to follow up because after people read Awakening from Grief, they often call or write and say, when are you going to write another book? And um, When Prayers Aren't Answered was an interesting one because doing the work that I've done with people who are grieving, I've seen that there are so many people, good, kind, decent, loving people, whose prayers are not always answered the way they want them to be. They've prayed for a loved one to be healed, and they weren't. They prayed for a loved one to be protected from danger, and a loved one died in an accident or, you know, through some experience of violence. Uh, 
and um, I wanted to see what the meaning was behind all that because those kinds of things and then larger experiences of things like Hurricane Katrina and the Asian tsunami and earthquakes and floods and all of these well, things. Even and most particularly, that's been most shattering for our planet is 9/11 and how people exactly. chose to respond to that. Exactly. Well, it's interesting that um, those things always give rise to the question, which is the fundamental theological question that theologians have wrestled with for centuries. If our Creator, if God is all good, all loving, and all powerful, how do these things happen? And that was Job's question. Exactly. And he was very articulate in that. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to kind of take a different look at it because having seen the potential in, as we were talking about before the last break, in dealing with these difficult circumstances in life, the potential for coming out the other end with an incredibly deepened sense of spiritual connection. And then I, you know, I mean, there are other people who come out the other end embittered and angry and feeling victimized. And uh, yet I see often enough that that isn't the way many people go, that they come out with a more positive perspective on life. With people that come out of those experiences with a negative uh, experience, uh, and they and they seem to hang on to it. Would you say that that's that they've stopped the process somewhere and not yeah. allowed it to come to its natural conclusion? Right. right. I think what we get down to finally, Anthony, is that um, we are caught in our own minds, in our own intellects. You know, we're caught in. Um, uh, a rational, discursive mind that wants to understand everything rationally. And one of the things that we've done is we've looked at our Creator in an anthropomorphic sense. That means we see our Creator as sort of a very large human being who probably looks like us and thinks like well, us. And, Jehovah, actually. Yeah, you exactly. know, that's a real, uh, um, a, a real, a rather harsh a projection of the, or, or a projection of the harsh father. Right. You know. Right. And so that just doesn't work ultimately because um, if we see God as, then we see God as a grand puppeteer in the sky who's pulling the strings of everything that's happening on earth. Um, my experience of it is something much deeper and more profound than that. I mean, it really sort of parallels. Um, what we understand in quantum physics, that there's only one energy in the universe, and it's all light. And it's Bell's, that's Bell's theorem of non-locality. Right, yeah. right. And that that, you could say that light is all-powerful and uh, omnipresent, and that perhaps if there's only one, then we say we're all one, and the thing that we experience through love is that oneness. We, and And there are many, many different degrees of love, you know. I mean, from, like, I love you because you've got a hot body to uh, I love you so purely that your happiness is more important than my own. And, and that uh, I love you because you are actually a part of me. Exactly. That's really when you get right down to it. That's a love that is tied to compassion. And 
understanding that oneness, feeling that oneness, that's really, to me, the highest experience human beings can have. Yeah. And that's really what, you know, when we talk about enlightened beings and divine love, that's really the way they're loving people, that everyone, we're all one, and you're actually experiencing that oneness. And it's interesting, we talk about that. The spiritual liter- literature has often referred to the inner light. And um, I think what it ultimately means is that we human beings have a consciousness that is evolved to the point that we now have the potential to experience that light consciously. Well, and it's coming around more and more with the help of the Internet that's actually mimicking a a global uh, telepathic state, I think. Yeah. It can, and it also can, can mimic and, and magnify the disconnection that people have. So it depends on how we use it. But when you're talking about prayers not being answered, there is a, uh, someone who prays, mm-hmm. and then there is a God image, mm-hmm. or, and there's a separation there. Mm. Uh, and you're talking about several different kinds of separation, one of them uh, being from oneself, from from the ultimate, from, mm-hmm. from the ultimate cosmic unity. But then the other one is to separate out uh, with your thought about what you think you want. Right, right. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, when people get what they, th- get what they think they want, mm-hmm. it may not really be what they really want. When they pray, and there's a, there's a puzzling thing about some of the... the uh, um, Christian-oriented uh, fundamentalist uh, folks who will feel, and maybe this is not just uh, of recent time either, but there was a feeling in a, in a community that if some people were more wealthy than others, that they were more blessed, right. and the poor yeah. were more uh, cursed mm-hmm. by God. But when a, when a when a person actually gets what they want, that can be much more a, a, a state of difficulty than they could have imagined. Absolutely. I mean, if wealth brought people happiness, we'd have a lot more happy celebrities than we have. We have, you know, people who are wealthy and famous in this culture tend to be extremely self-destructive. To say, and, yeah, and to say nothing of the... Of the uh the difficulty that's going on with the CEOs in large corporations. Right. You know? Right. So there are prayers that are answered, but... Um, so you're saying then when prayer is unanswered, it's, it's a disconnect between our thinking. Is well, that right? No, or? I think that when prayers aren't answered, uh, you know, one way to look at it is, one point of view is that prayers are always answered. It's just that we don't like the answer sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And you're exactly right, because that's a synchronous iteration of the the cosmic unity in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it and and actually there are some examples you look you speak about in the book where uh, people will get what they didn't think they wanted. But then in hindsight, they go, well, I couldn't have gotten there without this difficult thing that I actually got. It caused me to grow. Right. Now, you know, I don't say to people who are in the middle of grief and loss, hey, this is going to cause you to grow. 
because they'll punch you in the nose, you know, and it's not... Right in the middle of pain. And that is not a compassionate thing to say in that moment, but it's something that many people will come to on their own, you know, and so we all have those experiences in life where we look back and we say, that was the worst thing I ever went through. I never want to go through it again, but boy, did I grow from it. So how do we make the... I suppose one of the ways that we make a place for to to be kind with people, the question is how do we make a place for, for people to do that and to come to that in their own? Well, the first thing is that, you know, as you found with your own pain, was to give it its due, give it its space, allow it to be, and just be go through it. And as someone who spends a lot of time being with people who are suffering... Uh, I feel my first job is to just hold their hands and cry with them. And then... You meet them there. Yeah, to meet them in the pain. And then... Boy, that's a, that's a hard thing for our culture. Yeah. Well, I'd rather go watch The Simpsons or something than meet somebody course. in their pain. Of course. But what a, what a more uh, kind and, and soul-enriching experience... For both parties, would you say? Well, yes, because the ultimate thing that we want is connection. And the, the worst thing about grief, Mother Teresa said this, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said that the worst experience for a human being is to feel alone. Oh, yeah. And it's so easy to, to feel that disconnection when you're in the midst of such intense pain. Right, right. And, and there can be... You know, after right after 9/11, uh, we had such opportunity in that week after 9/11 yeah. that the whole world came together right. in a in a deep expression of compassion. Right. And uh, we had we could have been on a very different course. That's right. You know, and and yet in the course that we are on, it 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 calls us to act and and to meet each other with even more compassion. I would I, I would offer. Yeah. Well, I think certainly the opportunity is there, but, uh, you know, there's an interesting thing that I've seen. One of the first things that really grabbed my attention, and I wrote about this in When Prayers Aren't Answered, uh, was the number of people who I met who had been given a terminal diagnosis who would say to me something like, I've never felt as alive as I do since I got this diagnosis. Well, I couldn't understand it at first, but then I started to realize, because what they would share with me was that thing we were talking about earlier, that when you know you have a finite amount of time to live, suddenly life looks entirely different, and your priorities change, and you get more focused on the moment, and everything becomes precious. And we have to focus on the moment right now. We have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we're talking with my guest, John Welshans, and he has written two books, Awakening from Grief and When Prayers Aren't Answered. And how can people get a hold of you, John? Uh, the website is openheartseminars.com or johnwelshons.com, J-O-H-N-W-E-L-S-H-O-N-S.com. My email address is john at openheartseminars.com. And uh, they can go to the website, and they can also, if they forget the email address, there's a way to email me through the website as well. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, John Welshans. And John has written two books. One is uh, Awakening from Grief that we talked about in the first half of the show, and uh, the second book is called When Prayers Aren't Answered. 
And so before the break, you were talking about people being, again, in the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I look in part three of your book, to feel God's presence no matter what, um, and also learning to see as God sees. Mm. Can you talk to us about that? Well, that's a pretty big, that's a tall (laughs) order. (laughs) But I think that it's possible, and I think that every one of us gets glimpses of it. I mean, in a very simple kind of humorous way, just think about the fact that when we have moments of love in our lives, when they're just those like ecstatic moments of, oh, this feels so good, this is what I was born for, I want to feel this way all the time. Have you ever noticed that in those moments, even the people you don't like don't look so bad? No. (laughs) Well, and the interesting thing about those moments, as well as grief that I've noticed, is they're outside of time. Exactly. They seem to be infinite. They seem to last forever. Outside of time and outside of thought. Yeah. So you're not, you, your mind isn't busy in those moments. You're not thinking about something you'd rather do because you've reached contentment and fulfillment. Well, in the love space, in the grief, in the pain space, that's probably you'd like to be somewhere else. But. Of course, yeah. In the love space is, is what we're talking about yeah. at the moment. Right, right. Um, and so I think what's really helpful to people is to recognize that that's inside us. That experience is not something that was fed in by another human being or by whatever it was we did. I mean, another human being or some activity may have triggered it, but the fact of the matter is the experience of bliss is inside us. And so one of the things that I like to share with people is that if we could see that experience as like analogous to the sun, you know, like the sun is always shining, Uh, at night it appears to not be shining because the earth has turned away from it but it's shining and just shining on the other side of the earth and in the morning it comes back again and there are those days in which we are in the middle of a storm and the sky is so dark at midnight that or at noon that it seems like it's midnight just because there are so many thick dark clouds and stormy you know wind and rain and so on But if we could get in an airplane and rise up above the clouds, there the sun is shining. So I think in the same sense, it's helpful for us to remember that the sun of love is always shining in our hearts and that it's the storms in our minds that get in the way of our ability to feel that. So it's really like learning how to mine for the gold that's inside us. Jung talked, Carl Jung talked about this as the transcendent function. Right, and right. When you're speaking about the bliss in our hearts or the sun that is in our hearts, that is more the natural condition of the human being. Absolutely. And that's our natural all the rest state. of it is uh, an overlay, and it's not something that comes and goes. Right. We've, we've just come to a, a very strange consensus in this culture, though, <laughs> to pretend that it's somewhere else. Right, right. But in India, they don't do that. They don't do that, no. And in, in, in the Native Americans, don't do that. Right. So... Yeah, and it, it's like in... Sometimes I think of Zen Buddhism, which has an interesting perspective on enlightenment, which is, you know, in most spiritual paths, we're striving to get somewhere. And in Zen, Zen takes the opposite approach and basically says... Our work is to stop pretending we're not enlightened. 
oh, you know, right. that the, right. uh, the awareness is always present. So if we're not feeling it, we're pretending something. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Well, and in one of the quotes in your book, you say that, uh, what was it, uh, uh, every day someone tries to gain something, but in the Tao, something is always uh, to be lost. Oh, the, the way uh, the, uh, the student gains by daily increment, the way is gained by daily loss. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. 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 So it's really then about when prayers aren't answered to, f- to really understand what, what's going on there in a transactional mm-hmm. sense, right? Right. I think, why, why do I want things to be different than they are? Um, and in the cases where they simply can't, then what is the... What it has been offered, what has been provided to me by our Creator, by the universe, what is freely available that I'm not paying attention to? Right. But now, just to play a, a, a devil's advocate here, there have been studies done to show that prayer does make a difference Absolutely. in terms of healing. And, and I can speak to that uh, personally. My daughter was ill just recently in the hospital. and. Um, I'm not necessarily someone who does a prayer sort of thing, but I thought, well, you know, the thing that I can do is ask people's uh, thoughts for her well-being. Sure. And she did heal, and I'm deeply appreciative of that. Yeah. Um, So sometimes our prayers are answered, but that's more about aligning with a natural process. Is that right? But I didn't know that she was going to get well or not. Uh Right. Well, I had the same thing. I had a miraculous healing from polio when I was three years old which I wrote about in the book, which was directly attributable to prayer because the doctors had told my parents, you know, he's going to die. And my father said, what can we do? And the doctor said, pray. So my father, like you did, called all his friends and family and said, please pray for our son in whatever tradition you practice. And a few days later, my fever broke, my paralysis lifted, and I was fine. And the doctors and nurses at the hospital referred to it as a miracle. So we've taken it that way, you know, throughout my life. But I see also many circumstances like that. I was reluctant to tell that story publicly because I deal with so many parents who pray for their children and their children die. And so, you know, one of my teachers, Neem Karoli Baba in India, uh, seemed to have great powers of healing although he denied it, you know, people would come to him and say, can you heal so-and-so? He'd say, oh, I don't do that, but here, take a banana and feed it to him. And, you know, so in one case, the banana that had been blessed by the guru healed the person. In another case, the person ate the banana and died, you know, and Maharaji said, well, give him the banana, he'll be fine, and he died. Now, I don't know what to make of all that, except that I think that, that we tend to oversimplify things. Sometimes we get into the notion that everything is created by our thought patterns. And our thought patterns certainly have a big, a large bearing on our experience in life. Um, if we see the glass as half full or half empty, you know, there's a vast difference in how we're going to experience life. But in the end, there are many more profound uh, forces at work. And I mean, we could get into the ideas of karma and so on. That gets very complicated. But there are, it seems to me, certain situations where healing is possible and certain situations where it isn't. Well, and so really 
this is all about coming into, uh, in a volitional way, into alignment with the natural expression of the unity of being. Yeah, yeah. So that, um, you know, I was talking to Ramdas about this at one point, and he said, well, it really has to do with what work the soul came to, into this life to do. So that the experiences that come our way are going to be the experiences that will best facilitate what our, the work our soul has to do. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. We have to leave it there. We're out of time. And We're I so much <laughs> appreciate talking with you. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today. Uh, on attunement, and we've been talking with my guest John Welshans, and he's written two books, Awakening from Grief, and the other one is called When Prayers Aren't Answered. How can people get a hold of you, John? Well, uh, my website is openheartseminars.com. My name is John Welshans, W-E-L-S-H-O-N-S. The books are available through all the major booksellers, and the uh, bookstores and online bookstores and my email address is john at openheartseminars.com. And Anthony, it's been wonderful being with you and all your listeners. Well, I thank you so much. And do you have some final words for us? Well, uh, I would quickly say this, that often people say, I've been a good person, why didn't God protect me from difficult things happening? I think that God or the universe or our Creator does protect us. But we're protected not necessarily from difficult things happening, but we're protected because we're given everything we need as standard equipment when we're born to handle anything that happens to us. We have the inner resources, the inner light. If we'll just mine for it and find it, we can handle whatever comes down the pike. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Anthony Wright. I've been your host today on Attunement. And if you'd like to go to my website, you can go to www.attunement, that's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T dot biz, B-I-Z, if you want to listen to more lectures from this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.